This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 14, Creating the Third Artwork. Actually, I changed that last minute. I, I like As I was talking, <laughs> that came out differently. I was planning on just calling it the third artwork. Well, either way. <laughs> I have a massive headache, um, and I have been stubbornly trying to take care of it without um, medication (laughs) Um, or drugs, should I say. I don't know if I view pain pills as medication. Um, I view hydration and (laughs) clean food and exercise as good good medication for the for a headache and none of those things are working right now so I'm hoping that I'm able to coherently talk in this episode but I really really wanted to share um, a story with you today and the reason that I was excited not just excited to share this story but also felt that it was important to share this story is that I feel like artists and creative people alternative thinkers, whatever, are in this really special and unique place. I mean, all of the time, let's be honest. (laughs) But especially in this time, um, because um, we're going through a huge transition period, I think, uh, globally, locally, culturally, nationally, whatever. And There's some interesting things happening around that transition that I feel like artists are in an awesome, maybe awesome is a little bit of an overstatement, but in a really unique and special position to um, help people navigate. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to tell a story um, that recently happened that I think does a good job of illustrating artists' role in this time with protests, Black Lives Matter, um, the pandemic, uh, the election that's that's looming, all of the things. Um, and so I feel like we should just dive in. Before we do, two things that are important. Um, I am... I almost didn't post this uh, because, for two reasons. Number one, um, <laughs> this headache is pretty rough. And um, I know that's like a little bit of like, you know, like I turn into a little bit of a baby when I have headaches. <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, and then also the second thing is um, I am very excited to share that um this podcast, excuse me, this podcast was conceived of in the quarantine. I had more time, um, and that time is, is now over apparently. (laughs) Um, generally speaking, my work schedule before, before the pandemic hit, um, was already pretty, pretty stacked. Um, uh, that's definitely a choice that I make (laughs) and, take responsibility for. Um, however, because of that, it's really challenging now for me as things have become, you know, more back to the way they were in January that, um, it's been really challenging to find not just time to record this because the time to record this is actually pretty small. Um, what really actually I'm discovering matters when it, when it comes to telling stories in a way that's meaningful, um, and not a regurgitation of what y'all are already hearing is that I need a lot of space, uh, mental space to allow some of this stuff to germinate and pollinate or, <laughs> you know, I'm using gardening words and I don't know if I'm using them in the right way. <laughs> um, that the, it, but this is the true for all creative things that I try to work on, um, that are personal, um, client creative work is totally different. Um, client creative work can happen no matter how busy I am, but when it's personal and unique and special to me, 
Um, if I'm really stacked schedule-wise, I immediately notice a big drop in the creativity and quality of what I'm doing. And that's across the board, I think, most people. And so we decided that one of the ways that we were going to try to combat some of that um, is to create a Patreon. The Patreon link is in the notes of this episode as well as on my Instagram and Facebook um, and website. It is a place that you are able to support this podcast if you're enjoying the episodes and truly all support is going to be massive. Um, It's going to allow me to say no to other things and say yes to this thing. So um, thank you in advance for considering supporting it, choosing to support it. And if, and, and, and on that note, on that note, um, I'm fully aware that there's many people not in a position to financially support a podcast, and that is not a requirement to enjoy this podcast, to be a part of this community. Um, There are so many other ways that you can support this podcast. If you find value in it, please consider sharing it with people that you also think would like it. Please subscribe. Subscribing is one of the quickest and most powerful ways to help get this podcast in front of other people's ears. Um, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, etc. And also consider leaving us a five-star review because reviews also make a huge difference to people who are choosing to listen. Um, And thank you to the people that have already done so because that means the world to me. Okay, so so the third artwork. I want to talk about the third artwork um, and then I want to tell a story. Um about how I think the third artwork functions in life. So there's this sort of idea when you're making something for other people, you know, that that you presumably will go in front of others, others' eyes, ears, whatever. Um, I've been saying that. <laughs> I feel like this is the third or fourth time I've ended a sentence with whatever in this episode, which is probably something that's, I would say, connected to the, to the, the headache. We'll see. <laughs> I feel like I need to apologize for all of the weird things I say in this episode. So that's going to be a thing. Um, but when you are making something for other people, there's three entities at play, right? There's you and then there's the the artwork that you see and then there's other people and the artwork they see and somewhere in the middle of your vision and their vision is this third artwork right this thing that exists based on the perspective that you and the public have on the piece and that that sort of, it's almost like a perspective mashup. And it's a perspective of what you've made that did not exist until someone else interacted with it. If that sounds a little vague, here's another way of putting it. Um, I once was reading a Facebook post um, by the writer Elizabeth Gilbert years ago. And she was talking about how often she'll post Um, something that she's written on social media and she'll be really surprised that you know someone will leave a comment about their take on what she wrote and as she's like reading their comment she'll have the thought that is literally the opposite of what I was trying to say like like how did you get that out of what I just wrote like how did (laughs) like I don't know if anyone's experienced this I definitely haven't maybe experienced it quite as much with my art because I feel like art is a little bit more flexible in this way whereas the written language is more rigid and people it's much more easier it's much easier to miss to not misinterpret but to just wildly interpret written language in very different ways from the from the writer that actually wrote it um but then Elizabeth Gilbert went on to say something really interesting and she said I actually kind of like that though. Like if that's like, that wasn't my message, but if that, if my passage was the, the channel to get you that message that you obviously needed, 
I'm glad. I'm honored that I could do it. I'm glad that my words could be the channel, even if that wasn't my intention, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I liked that sentiment that she gave because what it seemed to allude to was that we're all actually like trying to receive, like we're all massive receivers, all of us. Our subconsciouses or whatever are all trying to give us information that we need. And art of any kind can be this really interesting channel for that, whether it was the artist's intention or not that we're all just sort of secretly subconsciously looking for inroads to get us the information that our brains really need. In fact, there's this really interesting idea in psychology with EMDR therapy, which I actually did, I would say three or four sessions of when I was in grad school and it profoundly changed my life. If you've ever done EMDR, it's this very different type of therapy. Um, it's a t it's a form of talk therapy, but it's very different than cognitive therapy where the therapist will ask you questions um, to help reveal information, you know, from you. EMDR rather is where the client does almost all of the talking and there is a sensory stimulation. Um, sometimes it's in the form of like these little vibrating paddles. And so the client will hold one paddle in each hand and they vibrate in an alternating pattern. And there's this idea in EMDR that your brain is constantly trying to heal itself. That whatever you're struggling with psychologically, even when you're not trying to actually fix that, your brain is subconsciously trying to fix it all the time. And the problem is then your conscious mind will will like interfere <laughs> and stop your brain's natural process of healing. And so EMDR is a way to sort of subvert that block and to reopen the channels of your brain's natural healing. And while you're holding these vibrating paddles, you are supposed to talk about whatever pops up into your head, like stream of consciousness. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, if you've never done it. Um, the first time I tried it was really unsuccessful. I felt really weird doing it. But once I got the grasp of it, the second session was probably one of the top five coolest experiences of my life. Um, it was... And it, it was through that process that I realized my mind is just constantly trying to fix itself if I get out of the way. And I think that's a fascinating idea that... Our minds are constantly looking for ways to heal and art and music and poetry and theater and all kinds of creative works can be information for, for lots of people um, in ways that they don't even realize necessarily. And the reason that this third artwork to me is so fascinating is because of the implications of cross-pollination and I remember like I really started to notice this when I did a, um, I guess you could call it a philanthropy event at Dell Children's Hospital. I started doing it four years ago. It's called The Art of Giving here in Austin. And the hospital brings in local artists to make pieces of art in the medical center with patients and local children. Um, and then the pieces of artwork are finished by the artists in their studios and then gifted to corporations that donate to the art therapy and music therapy programs at the hospital. It's one of my favorite um, ways to give back in, in my career so far. It's awesome. And one of the things that's really fascinating is what happens when you get a professional artist and kids making something together what what needs to shift on both sides right because kids are are trying to make something with a professional they look up to right the professional is also trying to create processes that little little kids and big kids can enjoy and it was fascinating to watch the ways that artists would solve these problems i remember there was one um artist named Troy and he like the first year every year he would come up with these wildly interactive art making um, stations but I remember like the first year 
he created this large, like it was, I would say it looks like a rope. Um, it, it was long like a rope, but it was constructed of hundreds and hundreds of rubber bands to make one singular rope. And then attached to this long rubber band rope were these little tiny um, rubber bands that were used to fasten markers to this this elastic band. <laughs> and then he, he harnessed this band um, into a really taut string. And he had all these markers on it. And then he put this huge white um, canvas surface onto the wall. And he had it so that kids could pull this rubber band back like a slingshot. And it would shoot forward. And all of these markers would hit the white surface and make this fascinating mark. And then the kids, I mean, and so the entire Art of Giving event, the, this process would be continuing and changing the artwork on the wall constantly and then he would slice up this large piece and and make art with it later um and to me to me I mean there were many examples of this I remember um Jet another artist he would have kids paint words and then he would um have them smear with a palette knife and like cover the words up and bury the words under these abstract paint marks as a way to kind of like imbue the energy of a word into an abstract painting, right? Freaking cool. This type of interaction was really profoundly impactful for me as an artist to see what happens when you take wildly different abilities and wildly different perspectives on like being a human, first of all and make stuff together. It's, it was, I'd never seen anything cooler. Like, and it really woke me up to the power of diversity. Um, we all like hear that lip service all the time, right? Diversity is good. Diversity matters. But it was seeing it in action that I was like, oh man, creativity and diversity are like meant to go together. That when you take wildly different people and bring them together to make something really fascinating shit comes out of it. That third artwork becomes crazy cool. And y'all would think (laughs) that I would be better at this process, you know, like working with little kids, making art with them. I used to teach little kids art for, you know, six years and I was actually weirdly terrible at it the first year. I <laughs> Making art with kids is totally different than teaching kids art. And so I, I, it was so rough around the edges, honestly, that I didn't think they would invite me back for a second year. Um, and then when they did, I was you know really motivated to, okay, what can I learn from this? really awkward experience the first year trying to make art with kids to make it better the second year. And and one of the things that I quickly realized after reflecting on my first experience trying to make art with little kids is that when you're making art with anybody, first of all, but especially someone who's coming from a totally different age group as you or perspective as you or ability level as you, if you are treating the project, the product that you're making together as the goal, it will be really hard to feel successful or be successful <laughs> because um, there's no way to control the product when you're working with somebody who's really different from you. Um, it's completely impossible. And that is something that can be really challenging when you're used to making stuff by yourself. Like how in the world am I supposed to make something that looks cool with a three-year-old? Like I (laughs) was really, so there was an element of that at play. And then also I realized that part of the stress that I had around making something beautiful to begin with was that, you know, when they did the art of giving event, they would do the actual art making at the hospital in April with the artists and the kids 
And then the artists would take these artworks home to their studios and finish them. And in May, we would send them to be framed. And then in June, there would be this big unveiling uh, at a really swanky gallery in West Austin. And there would be wine and hors d'oeuvres and, you know, the president of Bank of America, or I just made that up, but you get the idea, like that kind of people would be there. And so of course, like that first year, there was this tremendous amount of pressure on me. Like this thing has to look good, but I'm also working with preschoolers and I can't control a preschooler, not even close. And all of the fear and anxiety around trying to control the process ultimately made the process really crunchy and sticky and uncomfortable. And so then the artwork was, you know, not great either. So the second year that I was involved in this collaboration, I spent a lot of time trying to shift my energy away from the product. And that can feel a little bit like (laughs) non-intuitive, right? Like, the goal is to make art together, so shouldn't the, the goal, shouldn't my focus be on the artwork? And I realized in the, in the case of collaborating with someone really different, the answer is no. The, the focus is not on the work. The focus is on the relationship. And if you put your energy on the process and the relationship, then, and you know, maybe mix in a dash of really good faith and a lot of trust something really magical and cool is going to come if you can be open to it, right? Like, because there's no way to control it. There's no way to predict it. Um, And being open to what naturally emerges from this relationship is to me the neatest part about making something with a very, very wildly different person than yourself. And so, (laughs) and, and so that particular year, I got this idea of, okay, I'm a coloring book artist. I do a lot of illustration in black and white, and then other people interact with it. So what if I do a large black and white illustration of Austin? And so that first year, it was like a skyline on the very bottom of the canvas. It was like a a 36 inch by 36 inch canvas. And like 80% of the canvas was sky. And it was these undulating swirly shapes in the sky and they were empty, you know, and each kid that came and interacted with my piece would color in one of the shapes of the sky with a word or a drawing that meant something to them following usually like a theme. I think the first year it was like, here's your piece of sky, draw or write a word in there or a picture in there that means happiness or something. Right. And We were using acrylic paint markers, which were a supply that kids had really never used before. It was very exciting. And then when the event was over, I took this piece back to my studio and it was a skyline of Austin, but the sky was full of of drawings from children about things that made them happy. And, and then I, you know, tightened everything up with my own coloring and drawing and, and it was awesome. And I remember there was really no way for me to, to predict how that was going to go, but it, but it was good. And I, and I got even, I would say some extra validation, you know, because of course, of course I thought it, you know, looked good. We did it together and, um, but the piece went off to get framed and then it went to the gallery. And on the day of the opening, I remember showing up and talking to one of the docents at the gallery and they said, you know, I, um, are you Rebecca? And I said, yeah, hi, it's nice to meet you. And they said, you know, we actually were really excited to meet you because the day that we installed your piece, it, it happened to be facing the the window that looks out into the sidewalk and someone passed by and saw your piece and they came in wanting to purchase it. It was a, collect, a fucking collector, y'all, <laughs> that wanted to purchase this piece that had been done by, you know, hundreds of little children. And one barely known illustrator in Austin. That was how cool it was. That it wasn't just cool because myself and little kids had done it and the process had been really beautiful and meaningful and and healing and all the things. It was objectively really cool to look at by someone who didn't know anything about it. And um, to me, that was this really validating sort of proof that when you get out of the way and let go of the control and focus on the relationship 
and focus on the overlap in the relationship, right? What are the parts of my experience that are similar to the parts of the experience of these three, four, five, six-year-olds? And how can, in that overlapping space, can we make something together, right? When the focus is on the overlap and on the processes inside the overlap and the relationships in the overlap, this third artwork comes out that's just magic, And it sounds kind of weird to use this story about the art of giving as a template, but in some ways this experience at Dell Children's Hospital became this sort of model for me in my mind of how can can this dynamic be replicated in bringing people together from very diverse backgrounds to solve really big creative problems. Um, across really inflammatory topics, much more so than painting a canvas together, you know. And I, you know, the answer for a long time was, well, I guess I don't really know, but I felt like there was some information buried into this experience at Dell Children's that was like trying to come out around this idea. And I had really started to perseverate on it, you know, recently because, It feels like, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you listening to this can relate, but it feels like in times of like strife and collective, you know, uncertainty and lots and lots of change and lots and lots of transition, there's this tendency for people to want to control the product, right? Like, we don't, and, and there's this sense, even if no one's explicitly saying it, there's this sense that we don't have time to fucking play around and focus on feelings and relationships and just see what comes out. Like the world's on fire and we need to fucking get in there and double down and control the fuck out of the, what we make. And we need to be really conscious of what we make and we need to, and, and there's a sense of control, right? Like that we need to control this. There's no time to just see what happens. And the reason I got inspired to tell this next story that I'm about to share and also sort of weave it into this idea with this podcast episode is that I'd like to invite people to consider that maybe flipping that idea on its head is important right now. That maybe actually the most powerful thing we can do at the moment is to stop focusing on the products that we think we need to focus on, like peace or anti-racism or climate change, whatever, and instead focus on the relationships and the overlap with people that are wildly different than ourselves. It's a radical thing to suggest. Um... It's radical to suggest that you should prioritize a relationship with someone who you might really dislike, like really dislike their ideology. Um, It's kind of a crappy metaphor, but it's still somewhat an apt one for me to sort of say like the first year I made art with the little kids, I had this whole idea for them to doodle on my piece And one of the very first things that happened was I looked away for like maybe 30 seconds to talk to a parent and I turned around and there was a five-year-old going to town scribbling over all of this artwork that other kids had done. And and immediately there was this visceral reaction in my belly of, what the fuck are you doing? Like, (laughs) like you can't say that to a five-year-old. That was literally the thought I had. I was so much rage and anger at this destructive, brazen um, mess that was being made on top of all of these other children's really painstakingly done doodles. And, and also then, and so even, but even though my first reaction was so knee-jerk, then the second reaction was there five. They're literally creating something at the level that they're at. And is it unreasonable to suggest 
that there's full-grown adults doing the same thing? Is it radical to suggest that when we hear people, for example, saying something wildly racist and wildly messed up, wildly selfish, that they're just doing the best that they can? That idea is really hard for a lot of people. It's, I think, a little bit less hard for me because of my background as a teacher. And even still, it's hard for me, right? Like, I think that there's this sort of tendency when we see someone making something, like I did when I saw that five-year-old just scribbling on other kids' work, the initial gut reaction was, why are you being a piece of shit? (laughs) I hate even using words like that in relationship to a five-year-old. Isn't that so inappropriate? But what if it's equally as inappropriate to use words like that about adults? Even ones that are being ridiculously selfish and destructive and fucking up other people's hard work and creation. Are we just a bunch of children stumbling around doing the best that we can? And is there a way to, to step back and consider the people who are very different as maybe the same way as these artists in this philanthropy event had to do with little kids. How can I make something with them without judging them? They're just <laughs> at a different, they're just in a different place. <laughs> We're so used to assuming that biological age means anything. Does it? I don't know. From a creative standpoint, I'm not totally sure biological age means anything. I really think that it's a compelling idea to suggest that there's lots of adults walking around just being big three-year-olds when it comes to all kinds of things, you know? And is that a pejorative to to suggest that? Um, Maybe for some people who are still really angry, um, that could be a pejorative, but for me, it's it immediately makes me feel really tender-hearted. Like, oh man, all of these people doing destructive, selfish things are really just terrified three and four and five year olds in in their in their brains. <laughs> How can we make stuff with them? Because they have something to contribute, and this is what I learned when I when I shifted the focus from product to relationship scribbling five-year-olds have something to contribute to the artwork if you can find the overlap between yourself and them but this idea like i think still kind of remains you know like a little bit abstract um until last week i went to west texas um I was supposed to go with Jason last minute. He had to stay in Austin um, and the Airbnb was non-refundable. And so I just decided to go solo and I had an experience out there. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened, honestly, if Jason had been there. And I want to share that story with you because I feel like the experience and the story does a really good job of explaining how this creative overlap that I experienced in the Dell Children's Hospital art event can happen in more ideological ways between very different people of different opinions and different political leanings. And um, and so I want to tell that story. Um, I had just a full dis- disclaimer before I share this story. There's some uncomfortable moments in the story. Um, if you're, <laughs> there's an instance of, um, violence in the story, there's an instance of some politics in the story. Um, if those are not things that you're just feeling like you want to listen to right now, I felt the need to give the disclaimer because I know that those are not topics that are covered in this podcast ever <laughs> and probably won't be really in the future often. Um, but I do think the story is profoundly, um, positive ultimately and so I hope that even if you decide to like sit this one out (laughs) that maybe you come back to it later when you're in a good spot because this story 
wildly changed my perspective on on the ways that we can create with people in this country who are different from one another. Okay, so so I, for those of you that um, follow my work, um, you know I I love West Texas. West Texas is my sacred place. Um, I would throw my body down on the ground if anyone tried to mess with the land out there. Like that's how much I like love it. It's wild and free and and pure and untainted. Um, Brewster County, the county that Big Bend National Park is in, has 9,000 people in the entire county. It's peaceful. And, um, and when I go there, I immediately find myself again. And um, as soon as I leave, I'm thinking about going back. Like it's that kind of place for me. The first time I ever stayed out there was in a little town um, in an Airbnb that this lovely couple um, started when they retired early from ranching. They had been in the ranching business on this 20,000 acre ranch, y'all, down by the Rio Grande. Um, They had done really well and they had a, a, a measurable measurable amount of success and they decided to retire in their 50s and they moved up to this little town and um he is like a a welder and a sculptor and a metal smith artist and she started the airbnb and they're living their best life right and the thing that really struck me about them is basically they're about as different from me in lifestyle and ideology as you could possibly get. Um, I wasn't totally sure until recently how different they were, but the sense was, you know, they're pretty different. And I'm sure they knew how different I was. Like, first of all, I am perpetually in yoga pants. I have a top knot hair bun in my head all the time. I wear Warby Parker glasses when I'm driving into their property. Like I look like a hipster Austin millennial. I'm soft-spoken. I'm an artist. I'm I'm sure they were also very aware of how different I am from them. And it and the thing that was really great was of course they were polite because I was renting a space from them. But it, the the energy between us was beyond politeness. They just genuinely you could tell love people. All people. Like if your energy's good, we're good, you know? And immediately I felt very at home with them. They genuinely seemed to care about like what I was thinking, how I was doing. They would ask really interesting questions. And likewise, I just became very interested in them. They had like, I, I, like slowly over the past you know, few years, I've gotten to know them because I stay with them now every time I go. And I've heard little more, little more bits and pieces of their story and their story is amazing. Like they, they have had this fascinating adventurous life where they've not just been ranchers they've done tons of things and been tons of places and ultimately they just like are very passionate and in love with west texas and will always kind of have their roots there and so yeah so this is kind of like the situation i i so i came out to west texas um i of course was you know not really seeing them a whole lot because of social distancing. And I had trucked in all my food from Austin to to cook in the kitchen in the Airbnb. So I wasn't really going in the town for anything. I would drive in to Big Bend National Park in the morning when it was still really cool in the desert. And I would hike until like 11. And then I would drive back into the town when it was hot. And I would you just spend the rest of the day in the Airbnb, like drawing and reading and being alone. And it was awesome. But by like the third day, you know, like that kind of solitude does sort of like tweak with me a little bit, even as introverted (laughs) as I am. And so that morning I came out and sat on the eastern facing patio. Their their patio faces open ranch land because they're on the far eastern edge of this tiny ass town. And there's just nothing as far as the eye can see when you sit on their eastern patio and so it's like the perfect place to watch the sun come up and I I came out with my coffee that particular morning and she was out there watering her garden we started chatting 
And, and one thing led to another and she sat down and, you know, at a distance, you know, whatever. Um, and we started just catching up. She was asking me how I was doing. I was asking how she was doing. And slowly the conversation just turned into this like lovely third artwork, right? Like we were learning so much about one another in this conversation that we realized, oh, wow, there's actually a ton of overlap in our passions and in our lives. And I don't remember what, how it came up, but, um, I, I made, I think it was this, I made a comment about how, um, how much she inspired me because, this is a woman who's seen the world, (laughs) like who's seen some shit and hasn't been tainted by it. She's like a strong, grounded, positive human who's seen a lot of things, not easy things. (laughs) You know, she works ranch land. It's like, and I, I told her, I just said, I think I would immediately just like die out here (laughs) without someone like you around, you know, And she laughed and she said, oh girl, she said, if you took me to Austin, I would, the same would happen to me. She goes, I'm useless in a city. And so that conversation kind of continued. And finally, at some point I just broke the ice and kind of spoke the elephant in the room, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm an artist in Austin. I'm a big old hippie, you know, definitely of hippie leanings. And she she could have gotten uncomfortable with me just kind of being so forthright about that. And instead she just laughed, you know, because there was so much that we were making together through this conversation that her finding out that there was parts of me that were just ridiculously different from her. They didn't, it didn't bother her at this point, you know, and she just laughed and she goes, Oh, girl, if you're an artsy hippie, I'm a Christian libertarian. So (laughs) she goes, there you go. And then I just laughed because it was like, cool. All right. Elephant, elephant in the room. We've named it. And you know what? It's okay. Like, I still think you're amazing and you still think I'm cool too. And so the conversation continued. And honestly, y'all, this was the first time I'd ever had a conversation with someone so so different and so similar to me at the same time that was going so well. Like not too long ago, I had a conversation with someone who, um, and it was this awesome conversation. There was all of this overlap between our passions. There was this really cool third artwork kind of emerging between us as we talked. And then, and then similarly, it came out that this person was libertarian, but instead of the energy being warm and like, I know you're different, you know I'm different, we're cool. Instead, it was this, the, the, the person's voice changed, their body language changed, and immediately there was this wall. Like, like and I realized now this person is viewing me through the lens of libertarianism. And because they're viewing me through that lens... Now there's things that we can't talk about with good energy. Now there's this crunchy stickiness in the artwork that we're trying to make together. It was like the person I was talking to was trying to control how I was. Have you ever been in a conversation? Like it was the same type of dynamic as me trying to control a three-year-old on my artwork, right? Like they're like, no, 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 you got like, I feel this way and I'm trying to make a world that's this way. And so if you could just change yourself to be more like this in this conversation, that would be cool. Like, have you ever had that? It's like kind of a hard situation to describe with words, but that's kind of what it felt like, you know? And no one likes those conversations. They're really uncomfortable. And it's really hard to make something with a person from that place, as I learned trying to make something with a three-year-old that very first year. And so when this opposite experience happened with this woman of just like, oh, wow, I had never really experienced such flow between someone that was so different. And I I didn't want it to stop. And I could tell she kind of didn't either. 
And so we were continuing to chat. The sun has been up forever. Now we're just drinking coffee, just talking on the patio. And, and then finally I make my, I make a misstep in the conversation. I am talking about, um, my trip to big bend the day prior. And for those of you that have been out in West Texas, you know this, but the space between the border, um, and highway 90 is, um, full of border patrol. And so anytime you're driving in and out of the park, you have to go through border patrol and I made, I was feeling very comfortable. We'd been talking for almost two hours very easily about our differences. And so I just felt very open and honest and just said, yeah, gosh, I just WTF, like a stupid border patrol. They like, you know, brought a dog out to sniff my car and they were asking me all these questions and I just wish they weren't there. Like, why do we even need them? And her energy changed. I could feel it was very, it was very subtle, but it was just this little tightness. And I immediately like y'all, if I could have, like what I wanted to do was just like reach out with my hand and grab my words and just like pull them back into my mouth. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. No, like this, this conversation is so amazing. I'm so sorry. And I just, but there was no way to take it back. And so I tried to pivot, um, by saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I actually, I know that you used to have a ranch on the border. Like what's your experience with border patrol? And as a testament to the awesomeness and our ability to overlap and find commonality, this is what she immediately said to me. She said, oh, Rebecca, she goes, I know what you're talking about. She goes, the crap that's happening at the ports of entry is really messed up. She goes, I've seen women with babies coming through here, really good people, and they're treated like crap, and I know what you mean. She goes, but we have a different story with Border Patrol. She goes, and sometimes I get bristly because people from the city don't know, and they'll say things based on their perspective um, from there, and sometimes I just wish they knew more about the perspective from people that live on the border. And then she told me a story. And this was the story. Um, And I think that it was probably intentional that she told this particular story because this story that she shared with me had a lot of overlap with my stories and my life. She said that they, um, when they owned their ranch along the river, they would have coyotes come through all the time. She said they would see sometimes one or two a week on their property coming through. And I, y'all, this is how little I know about this shit. I had to ask her what coyotes were. (laughs) I'd heard the word. I wasn't totally sure. And she said, oh, you know, Rebecca, they're drug runners. She goes, people that come over illegally are usually drug runners. People that are coming over to flee violence usually go legally through ports of entry. Um, And so the ones that we were finding on our property were almost always those types of people. And she said, Rebecca, those types of people live very hard lives they have to they're trudging through wilderness illegally they are smuggling illegal things they tend to be very violent towards women and children and other people and she said once we happen to leave to go um on a on a river trip for for my birthday And while we were gone, some came through our property and broke into our house. And in the process of doing that, one of our dogs must have tried to stop them. And when we came back, we found our dog kicked to death. And we had to call Border Patrol. And she said, it's the only time I've ever seen my husband want to chase someone down. She said it was awful. And she goes, so that's like just one example. We need them. We need their help. Like Like they've literally helped us with these really violent situations and so she goes I understand your point but it's just for us it's very different and it wasn't an accident that she told me that story because she knows I have two dogs and if I ever experienced that it would ruin me (laughs) y'all it would ruin me and The thing that was fascinating about that story with her is that 
I was like, oh, this is how, this is how people can create stuff with others who are wildly different. It's through story, you know, because how, this is how we find our places that we overlap. At no point in that story did she tell me my perspective was wrong. She just said, here's an example of my perspective through this thing that happened to me. And there's no way for me to argue with that story. And that's the case for everybody, right? Like you can't argue with someone's story because someone's story is completely removed from ideology. Story is separate, right? And so there was no arguing, there was no opinions, there was none of that. It was just this story happened and this is part of why we now have this perspective. And it was really eye-opening for me. It like Instead of it changing my perspective on Border Patrol, it expanded it. And it made me see, like, oh man, if that had been my dogs, I would want someone to come. <laughs> If that had been my property, I would want someone to come. So this is an unusual story to tell in Secret Sauce. I know. Um, I, I went back and forth on telling it for a long time. That's why this episode is getting posted a little bit later. Um, because... It's very normal to like hear anything and just immediately like feel like really like stories about hot button issues trigger our own stuff. And I didn't want anything in this story to be unnecessarily triggering to anybody. But it's my hope that it's not terribly triggering because there's really no ideology being pushed in this episode at least I'm trying very hard to not push any ideology it's just stories that were exchanged between me and this person who are different in a way where the energy was amazing and this third artwork happened between the two of us and it was awesome I I know I keep saying awesome but it was awesome she by the end of the week she was showing me properties for sale in her little town like She goes, I would manage it for you as an Airbnb and you could just do art trips out here and bring people to do art and I would love to meet your husband and and show him my garden. Holy moly. This is the type of bond where really crazy problems can start to get solved. This is the type of woman I want in my space when we're trying to solve things because she respects me so much and I respect her so much that now we're able to make some shit some cool shit in the places where we agree and in the places where we disagree we get to have these really cool conversations that expand the third artwork between us it's radical to suggest and it's a really un it's a really like rough around the edges idea that I'm even pitching in this episode. I just had this experience last week. I don't, I'm sure there's tons of flaws in the point I'm trying to make. Um, <laughs> but what I'm trying to suggest, and I think Secret Sauce ultimately is trying to suggest this subtly in every episode, whether it's through me or through other people that come on here and talk. What if the art isn't the art? What if the thing that we really need isn't to focus on the product? What if we need to focus on one another and our energy and our relationships? And then the product is just going to emerge. What if that's why we struggle so much with making something new? What if the reason why we've, for for generations, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there's been revolution after revolution after revolution in every country, in every society. And every time that there's a revolution, we just build another pyramid where very few at the top have all the power and all of the people at the bottom are fighting with very little. 
and they're fighting over their differences and, and who benefits from that fighting, you know? Why do we always build the same thing? Why do we always build this pyramid in our systems, our systems of education, our systems of employment, our economic systems? What if it's because we're always focused on the art? What if it's because we're always focused on the product? What if the sh- what if we shifted the focus just like just like the artists at Dell Children's had to shift the focus away from the product to the relationship and just trust that if I focus on the relationship and if I prioritize the places that we share commonality, something really cool is going to come out of that. Something that we can't possibly predict because you can't control product when you're collaborating. I just, I don't love the word just, and I know I use it often. (laughs) Just is not a good word when you're talking about something this massive, you know? There's that African proverb that circles around the internet. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. I think we're entering a new era where going alone isn't working anymore. We've had all of these brilliant singular minds creating all of these solutions that just create more problems. Um, We're in this new era where I really think the things that we make are going to have to be together because no one person has the solution that we need. Like the solution that we need is going to be a concoction of thousands of brains together. And that's hard as shit. I'm not even, I hope that at no point in this podcast, it sounds like I'm suggesting that this is just like, oh, and then you get a cup of coffee and then you go and sit with this person who thinks totally differently than you. And then magic happens. Like that's not how it works. I'm almost 40 years old. And this woman is one of the first people I've ever been able to have that conversation with. This is hard as fuck. (laughs) I'm not suggesting this is easy. But I am suggesting that if we can find those people and we can prioritize those connections, something amazing is going to happen. And it felt important to talk about this right now because I know that when things are freaking scary, the first thing I want to do personally is to surround myself with lots of hippie crunchy granola artists and talk about all the things that make me feel safe and comfortable And one of the things I learned last week is I can feel safe and comfortable with people who are really different from me if those people prioritize the relationship. If we can find people that prioritize the relationship, we can sit with ridiculously different people and have these conversations. I'm I'm convinced. And I know there I know it's not that simple as this hour and a half long. I I feel like this is probably like a 90 minute episode at this point. I know it's been so long, but this is the power of story and this is the power of relationship. And I, I think it's a place to start. And then the other stuff will just kind of like happen. I've seen it happen making art with kids and I think I think there's an argument to be made for how it could happen with people who are really different from ourselves also um what does that even mean you should do from here like great Borelli this freaking artist is telling me to like (laughs) be like to like have these hippie conversations with people that I disagree with I, I wouldn't even suggest that that's what I'm saying Um, I just think it's the idea, like the next time that the energy is really good and you realize the person's different, I don't know, maybe you'll remember this weird artist told you a similar story on a podcast and maybe that will be sort of new context for future conversations with people who are different. Um... It's, 
it's not too hippie. It's not too woo-woo to suggest that we can come together across our differences. And I'm not talking about, I'm not even talking about the obvious differences. I'm talking about the subtle differences. I'm talking about the types of people that you really don't like their viewpoints, like really don't like. This this person, this Airbnb owner who I've now found myself feeling really close to has viewpoints that I really don't like, like really don't like. And I'm so inspired by the fact that that can coexist with deep respect and good and good energy on both of our sides, <laughs> you know? <sighs> I was driving back to Austin. I'll wrap up this episode with this story. I was driving back the long way to Austin this time through these little towns and the woman that was staying next to me in this Airbnb told me to stop at her brother's store. She said it was really cool and I could get like some cool, like he had a bunch of imported stuff from Mexico and all around Texas. And it was like three stories and he had all kinds of really cool specialty food and wine. And she's like, you'll love my brother. He's super cool. It's in this little town, you know, and I hadn't honestly been in a single store the entire time I was traveling. So I pull into this little town. I put on my mask. I get out of my car and immediately two women sitting outside of one of the stores, smoking some cigarettes, do this thing that I almost never have happened to me anymore. They looked at my toes and slowly up to my face and then back down to my toes. And the woman goes, hello. And it was with that tone. It was like, who the fuck are you? You stupid Austin hipster. (laughs) Like that was the energy. I was like, am I imagining this? Am I projecting my own insecurities on this? Possibly. And she says, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going to this store. And she goes, oh, that's not this. That's not the store you want. And I was confused because I knew it was. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 I'm pretty sure that's the store I want to go to. It, it's this name. And she goes, no, no, it's it's my store right here. You want to go in my store? And I was so rattled by this woman's ridiculously judgmental energy that I was, I like, was like, okay, I'll, I'll go in your store. I walk into her store and I, and I take a look around and I'm, and I, I have this hysterical thought of why am I in here? I, why did I let this stranger bully me into going into a store I don't want to go into? This is ridiculous. So I leave. And as I pass these women to go into the store I want to go into, they, they fall silent and are bra- like staring at me. And it was so uncomfortable. And I get into this store and I immediately exhale. And I'm like, you know, maybe I just imagined that uncomfortable encounter. Like I, I was like, this guy is the brother of this woman I just met. I, I feel immediately more comfortable. I peruse the store for a little bit. I, I find a mug that I like. I take it to the front desk and I say, hello. And he takes one look at me and in the exact same tone of voice, he goes, hi. And I was like, hi, I just, I heard about you from your sister. She told me to stop by. And he goes, oh yeah. And I was, and I was just, um, I was uncomfortable then. I was like, oh, here's here's this same energy. And he looks me up and down, same situation. He goes, you head back to Austin, huh? And, he, and then he laughs. And he goes, I fucking hate Austin. And I was like, oh, wow, here we are. And, and it was in this moment that I realized this is the divide. This is the wall. This, these people already, have, they already are letting me know we're not cool. We're not making anything together. <laughs> and it made me realize how special this couple in this small town Airbnb was because at no point did they make me feel that way. Even when they knew how I felt about politics, even when they knew how I felt about the things that I felt And those are the relationships where I think the world is going to change. I really do. And and I don't know. Making art was somehow this weird 
this weird metaphor for how it could happen, you know. (sighs) My intuition, my spidey sense says I went a little too long on this episode, (laughs) but it was an important one to me. And I also haven't posted in two weeks, so this one was a little bit more. Um, I love y'all and I appreciate um, that you come and listen to these ramblings. I have some cool people on a lineup for August to come visit and share a little bit more um, about this idea of what if the focus isn't the art? What if the focus is other things? And the art is just this happy result from focusing on the secret ingredients, you know? Anyway, until next time, I hope you have a fabulous week. Peace, friends.